Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan. Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right. 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taylor Capital's uh, podcast. And today we're really excited because we've got Adam Markley. Uh, now, Adam Markley is uh, partners with Carl Allen, uh, and they're very much into acquisitions of businesses and commercial property. Uh, and Adam heads up the private equity arm, plus also the publishing arm. And today, what we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about how to create cash flow, grow your wealth through businesses and commercial property investing, really it comes down to this, the art of acquisitions. Um, and for me, that's a wonderful space and no better person to be talking with than Adam today. So Adam, could you just give us a little introduction, who you are, uh, where you come from, and how you got into this beautiful world of acquisitions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so thanks for having me, Dan. First and foremost, really thrilled to be here. Um, you see, my my career started in, in, in accounting and finance. Uh, and uh, I fell in love with small business along the way, and I just had envisions and ideas of how to acquire small businesses and uh, and use that for wealth creation. Fast forward, we'll just say a number of years, and uh, and uh, I've ended up now. I own own businesses both in the U.S. and the U.K. I own property in uh, in three different countries, and. Um, I'm excited, excited about all of the above and, and certainly happy to talk about it. You know, our specialty is really maximizing, mm-hmm. maximizing our own wealth creation and returns for anyone we work with from an investor perspective through identifying value add opportunities. And typically for us, our focus is on business and we can use real estate as a lever to allow us to acquire more companies. Yeah, fantastic. Cool. And is there any favorite business acquisition, commercial property acquisition, or both? <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, so you mentioned Carl. So Carl hates real estate. Uh, I love real estate. So we have we have a good dichotomy. But I'm converting into the light, maybe dark side. I'm not sure which side. But, um, but the idea is I'm converting him over because there's so much more potential you can unlock, especially through deal structure when you've got real estate involved. For example, if you aren't necessarily interested in that particular property for a couple of reasons on an acquisition, you can simply partner with real estate investors who can come in, acquire the property, sign a multi-year lease with the actual operating company that we might be involved in from an acquisition. Or if you are interested in that property because you see expanded value add potential or things like that, you can pull it into the fold and do a, a singular deal uh, for both the business and the property. But yeah, I love, I, I love both. And, uh, my focus, my focus is more on the business side and I can explain in, in a little bit why that is. But, um, I typically focus first on the business and then the, the real estate second. Yeah, I'm kind of both as well. I love both. I'm, I love buying businesses that also own their underlying commercial property and then relocating the business and repurposing the, you know, the commercial property to something else. Uh, in fact, one of the guys in the club uh, brought a deal last week with an LBO. Uh, it's been around since 1945. Great business, uh, plating business. So a uh, really basic kind of business, 
and uh, really good profits in the region of, I think EBITDA is in the region of just about 400,000 or something. Paid 1.5 and he was asking, how do we repurpose this commercial? What can we do? And we gave him three plans and each one basically created 1.6 million profit from the commercial, therefore basically giving him the business for free. <laughs> which which is great. Any anytime you can get a business for free, that's a that's a heck of a winning deal, especially if it's putting say four hundred thousand pounds a year into your pocket. Um, obviously, net of taxes and all that, but that's still a great that's still a great situation. And why wouldn't you why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, so it's really important to understand both sides of the coin, kind of thing, the business, the commercial property, because then you can really achieve great returns. And what we found anyway, which is cool. And it, and for me, what is your um, what is your number one you know your preferred acquisition strategy? Is it an LBO, no money down, or you know what is it for you? What is your sweet spot kind of thing? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think there's there's a couple of different buckets to it, right? LBOs are always preferred because there's no risk, there's there's nothing. You you're you're finding a way to put no money in, and you're able to secure the deal. But the reality is, LBOs are hard deals to do typically. Um, the business might have existing debts on the books that pro prohibit you from, say, financing the assets in the way you want to. The, the seller might have an expectation of, of cash at closing that the business can't support. And one thing that's important to note, in the US especially, as compared to the UK market, the, U the UK market is, is driven by businesses that pay taxes at the business level, right? Limited companies. In the US, it's rarely paying taxes at the entity level. It's almost always paying taxes at the individual level. So in the UK, when you have entrepreneurs relief and the, the seller of the business can take beneficial tax rates by including extra surplus cash in the deal, and you can just make a closing payment right out of the surplus cash because they'll pay less taxes on it. That mechanism does not exist in the US at all because cash isn't kept on the balance sheet for that reason. And so when I'm looking at deals, in the UK, I think LBOs are really great. Uh, I think they're far more feasible. In the US, I think they're a little bit more difficult. The nature of sellers are, are a little bit difficult. So what I look for in the US, and this is where we're kind of migrating our business is, how do we find a good pool of investors with capital to invest who want great returns against high-performing, consistent, established assets? Yeah, absolutely. And, and who's your perfect vendor, you know, demographically? What do they look like? Because this, for me, is a really important area, especially when we're, you know, coming into this decade we're in just now. Um, you know, but in the US, obviously, I would think it's the same as the UK. Who's your perfect or your, your kind of normal uh, demographic of your vendor? You know, what do they look like? What age are they? Uh, what kind of industry do you like? Um, you know, yeah, so, so, so we, we tend to be, we tend to be fairly industry agnostic. Um, which is a which is a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing it means the world's your oyster, right? Like you can you can do anything and be anything and and find anything. The challenge is you can do anything, be anything, find anything, right? You can you can have a too much of a scattered approach. So for us, we narrow that down to we focus primarily on B two B businesses. We look at businesses that typically are recession proof, businesses that are either home services, uh, contractors. Um, uh, contractors, especially here in the U.S., uh, which is a pretty broad de definition. Um, but but things like, for example, your HVAC company, the guy who's keeping the heating and the cooling going on in your house. I know I know cooling isn't necessarily as as relevant up there in uh, up there in Scotland, but um, but for the majority of the U.S. as an example, 
these companies are are having great years off the back of the pandemic because guess what? People all of a sudden sat at home so much of the time and were running their systems so much harder than they were. And so it was great, great, great year to be in business for those kinds of things. So we look for again recess, recession proof, established, profitable businesses. And the and the owners in, of these businesses are very much retirement age, ideally. We typically avoid companies that are being sold by someone who's under the age of 50. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't look at them, but we tend to avoid them because the motivation of, say, a 40-year-old who's looking to sell the business they've had for 10 years is a lot different than the guy who's 65 years old and really looking to sunset into the next phase of his life. So we look at we look at those people who are willing to move into retirement. They've probably let their foot off the gas a little bit. There's probably a lot of kind of value add opportunities because they haven't been pushing as hard. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's important to find those opportunities. No, absolutely. We've just done a, a, a scraping lately of businesses uh, that are not on the market for sale, but owners are over 70 years old and it's usually couples. And the business is basically a business of commercial property portfolios. It's anything between three and nine million. We've been scraping that off and starting doing the old snail mail, direct mail recently. You know, to, to, to help them get that first contact kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's just going to be a great resource going forward, a great strategy going forward. The business of owning commercial property portfolios, for me, you know, early days, but we'll, we'll keep you apprised of what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's certainly, that's certainly squarely in your wheelhouse. And the thing is, you know, while we've got horizontal skill sets and we've certainly built a team to, to be able to support pretty much any type of business. You know, we are we are very cognizant that not every deal that comes to us is the right kind of deal. And you know, we've been fortunate; we've reverse engineered some of the process of deal origination. So people people just bring us deals, as as Dan, I'm sure you just have deals coming to you as well. And and the reality is, we have to say no a lot. Uh, we had just a couple of weeks ago, we had someone bring us a zoo for sale, a zoo. A zoo with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But the reality is that's not a business we're necessarily going to feel good about owning or or have the have the ability to to scale it in a way that would make sense for us. And so so things like that we'll we'll certainly pass on. But it's not every day you get offered a zoo for sale. If you're a business owner, professional, or SaaS pension trustee, and you want to stop the inflation erosion of your capital, you want to create cash flow and grow your retirement capital, but you just don't have the time. Do you want the baby without the labor pains? Then if you qualify, you may be able to invest with us. If that's you, pop along to tailorcapital.co.uk. We do the deals so you don't have to. It's kind of like the Netflix of investing. And you ascribe to the method or strategy of investing in businesses where you don't know much about it. Therefore, you can't get involved in it. <laughs> or I would assume you don't get involved on a day-to-day basis anyway. Uh, do you yeah, know- so for us, again, there's, there's, everyone's got different objectives, right? So for us, we're in the business of buying businesses. So we're going to get a little bit more involved than say someone who's just looking for great returns on their money as an investor, right? That person's pretty passive. They're going to put their cash in, get, get cash out, and they're going to get returns. Someone like myself sits kind of in the middle where we're going to be involved from a strategic direction perspective. Effectively, we're going to make sure the cash keeps growing and the cash keeps coming. That's that's our goal. And then there's people who truly want to be owner operators. And those people are, are they want to be in the weeds. They want to be in the business day to day. And that's not us. You know, we, we put infrastructure in place so we don't have to be that people. 
We are owner investors. So we straddle the investor line where you're fully passive and the operator line where, where you've actually got to be involved. That's fantastic. And let me ask you this question because it's really insightful because I find in life sometimes, uh, you know, when you're feeling forward or you've apparently failed, you know, within that failure, the seeds of a massive opportunity that then cultivates, you know, your approach going forward. So have you had any kind of apparent failure that then molded you going forward to create even greater success kind of thing? Yeah, so it's an uh, interesting question for sure, Dan. Um, uh, one, one failure that's, that's definitely been interesting that, that taught us some lessons is we had a deal abort the day before closing. When we were $30,000, $35,000 into legal fees and due diligence fees and all this other stuff. And there were some good takeaways. Uh, you know, I won't get into necessarily all the specifics of why the deal aborted, but there were takeaways for our side and lessons we learned where we, we realized we could have better protected ourselves in ensuring the deal made it through completion. And that way you're not writing checks that, that don't necessarily get paid back because you don't own the asset anymore. It's important to realize when you're buying either property or you're buying a business, you as the buyer hold the majority of the risk prior to closing. Why? Because if the thing doesn't close, you've spent money, but you don't own the asset. The seller might have spent money, but they still own the asset that's an income producing, return generating asset. So while buyers have the leverage, typically speaking, and especially on the business side, typically on the business side for sure, you still have the greater risk prior to closing in terms of financially, even if you're working on a contingent fee basis with, with a lot of uh, outside providers, you still have the majority of the risk prior to closing. Now, that's matched by you have disproportionate amount of return post acquisition. Absolutely. I remember one uh, completion. Uh, it was a completion day after nine months of legals with this PLC. We're selling 226,000 of legal fees. Um, and it started at six in the morning. By quarter past 11 at night, it was off. <laughs> it was an absolute nightmare. So we changed everything from that approach going forward after that. Uh, cost us a lot of money, big lessons, big learnt, you know, learnt on that day kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think the real cost, Dan, the real cost, Dan, isn't the money, right? I was saying ours was like 35000 It wasn't, that wasn't the issue. The real issue was the amount of time. You know, this was a deal we'd worked on uh, for nearly a year, a lot of time, energy resources uh, that had gone into it. It was a great deal, but it ended up being a terrible deal at the end of the day because of the opportunity cost of how much time was spent on something that didn't close. So we refined a whole lot of things uh, behind the scenes. We're a whole lot better at saying no. Uh, than we used to be. Um, and we're far more protective of our time. I, th I couldn't agree more. I think this is a decade of saying no more, actually, for me anyway. As, you know, sometimes get sucked into things just because I'm into it. Um, but really, you know, as consciously I'm thinking all the time, you know, don't say no unless it's an absolute, you know, home run kind of thing. Uh, don't get sucked in. Because it's just like you say there, it's opportunity cost. And um, in terms of, um, you know, through the years, all the acquisitions you've done, you've been involved in. What is the single most, the single biggest lesson learned from the whole thing? Ooh, single biggest lesson. Um, you know, uh, to use kind of a, a country music song here in the U.S., know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Um, you know, 
you know, uh, the, the reality is no matter what a company or a property, no matter what it is, can look like the best opportunity you've ever seen in your entire life. It can look like the best opportunity. And it can be, you know, it can be uh, to maybe, uh, you know, late, late in the second half, so to speak, if you will. Uh, call it the 75-minute mark where, uh, where all of a sudden things change on you. You find something in due diligence, a skeleton comes out of the closet. Um, and you've got to, you've got to know and stick to whatever your values are, stick to your investment thesis, stick to whatever it is that you lay out for yourself and you don't give on those things. And I think that's been the biggest lesson is if it's a good deal, it's a good deal and it'll stand on its own no matter what happens in terms of skeletons. But if skeletons come out and change the actual opportunity, then you have to know it's okay to walk away and you've got to stick to your investment thesis. So often I've seen people get you know, scope creep or investment creep in terms of, well, we'll just blend a little or edge a little on, on what it is we're doing uh, because we'll just get this one across the line. Well, the reality is that can cost you. You know, there's an expression in real estate, fine, Dan, I'm sure you know it. It's you make your money on the buy. You don't make your money on the sell. You make it when you buy the property because that's the foundation of every single return metric out there is what your original cost was and what that looks like. And if you end up paying too much or you end up spending time, energy and resources on problems that you just kind of let slide because you wanted the deal closed, it will cost you years and big, big, big money. Um, and so being able to, to know when to hold and, and stay on the path or know when to fold and get out uh, is, is an important lesson. I call it deal fever. Some, some people just have Deal to- heat. Yeah, we call it deal heat. Yeah. And, you know, up until you're closed, you should always be investigating. Never, ever stop investigating. Never be afraid to walk away, um, which then, I suppose, comes back to your, your previous point. Make sure your, your deal fees are kind of managed and you have an abortive fee that you're comfortable with um, and a deal fee and always pay your guys what they're worth kind of thing. We, we always yeah, pay- exactly. I mean, deal making, whether it's property or business, is a relationship game at the end of the day. And you're appropriately managing the relationships of your kind of providers, your attorneys and accountants and things like that. It'll put you in a place where, where you can be really successful. Uh, but it's a matter of, it's a matter of managing those relationships and knowing that when you win, they should win. And if you lose, they're kind of along the ride for you to help mitigate your risks. I always, when I speak to new providers, professional team, deal team, I, I always start out with this one thesis. When there's food on the table, we all eat. When there's no food, <laughs> you wait till the next meal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because the thing is, if you get nickeled and dimed and you get bled dry on, on deals that abort, because listen, deals abort, they do. And most of the time for really, really good reasons. And, and there's a, there's a cost, of course, to that time and money. But the reality is if you can mitigate some of that risk, as you're saying, it's, it, it avoids you draining what, whatever cash you have just for the art of pursuit. Managing expectations of your deal team as well at the beginning, as opposed to having this awkward conversation when it doesn't work, uh, is really important. And start with the end in mind and cover all bases kind of thing. But, but for yourself, for anybody just starting out, you know, maybe they've, they've got a pension they wanted to invest or maybe they've got some money in their, in their company they want to invest. If somebody's starting out in that road to, you know, create cash flow, grow their wealth, 
what, what would you suggest would be the, the starting point in terms of creating cash flow, capital events, grow their wealth kind of thing? Yeah. So if I'm an existing business owner, the fastest way to grow your wealth is to acquire competitive, complementary, or supply chain type companies around you. Let's, let's use a simple example. Do you own a landscaping business? All familiar with what that looks like. You know, you're, you're mowing the grass, you're, you're putting in hedges and things like that, right? Trimming them. You own a landscaping company. You have three options you can, you can look into from an acquisition standpoint. You can go acquire a competitor, which is another landscaping company, potentially geographically friendly. So you're now getting more crews, more equipment, more client base, and you'll get some synergies on your back office. So your profit margin should expand, right? The second is complementary. So if I'm a landscaping company, I'm going to go buy a hardscaping company, someone that's doing, you know, patios and, 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 and brickwork and things like that. Why? You have the exact same client base. You just are expanding your product offerings. And so a complementary business allows you to take the hardscaping company's clients and sell them landscaping services and the landscaping services clients sell them hardscaping services. And this cross promotion, this cross selling will create big value add. In addition, the same synergies often apply in the competitive example. And then the final one is like a supply chain thing. Well, when you're selling directly to consumers, you can't go down the chain because you, you can't buy a consumer necessarily. Well, maybe you could, I don't know. But the reality is you start looking upwards and you're like, well, who could I potentially buy? Every single business has their chart of accounts and their chart of accounts They've got all the vendors they're paying. They've got all the money they're spending on supplies and materials and all that. Every single company you pay money to for anything is a potential acquisition target, either directly that company or another company providing the exact same level of services. Why not? Now you're controlling more of the supply chain. Guess what? If you now own further up the supply chain and you've got, say, a... Um, you know, a garden company that were an arborist who, who's growing trees for landscapers to go plant. Well, guess what? They're selling to many landscapers. And now you're going to build relationships with a bunch of other landscapers. And when those guys want to sell, you can go buy their businesses. And now you're really building out your portfolio. So the number one way, if you're a business owner, is to take a look at your own business and how do you grow from there? And that's if you're a business owner. Now, if you're not looking to grow through acquisition for your own business, it's still getting involved in acquisitions from an investment perspective. Whether it's a business or property, we could have a pretty intellectual debate as to which one's better. There's pros and cons of both. Um, but the reality is acquisitions by far are the fastest way to grow. Uh, it's, just, it's not one or the other. It's why not both? You know, why yeah, of course. not have a multiple diversified income stream, a hedged approach, different geographies, different asset classes, different tenants, different sectors is really uh, what I kind of love and what we profess to you know, our investors. And um, what, Well, because what... the reality, Dan, the reality, Dan, and excuse me for jumping in, the reality is this. If someone has, say, a business that's making them 300,000 pounds a year in profit, well, that's great. If you then double the size of your business through an acquisition, well, guess what? Now you've got 600,000. Well, what are you then doing with all the money you're making? You should be taking that money and investing in a way that hedges against your core asset, which is the business you own. So go find property investments, either that suit the business or don't suit the business. Go find other businesses to invest in that aren't tied to your main business, but are going to generate you return. 
become a minority owner, um, where someone else is doing the work and you're just cutting the checks. What I love about acquisitions is uh, sometimes we buy income streams that have been around for decades and decades and decades. And it's incredible being able to slip into the shoes of someone else who's done all the work uh, for sometimes very little output in terms of cash on the day. Uh, and that, for me, learning the art of acquisitions, wh whatever it may be, is absolutely should be, like you say, first on the list if anybody wants to create some wealth uh, without a shadow of a doubt. But if you had, imagine you had a, a planet billboard and yeah. you had to say, you had one message to say on this planet billboard, what would be your message to everybody? Oh, my single message. Um, uh, success is on the other side of fear. Yeah, love it, love it. And what right, about like, like people? People are afraid to take the leap, whether it's an investment, whether it's an acquisition, no matter what it is. Um, you remember what it was like before you ever did your first deal, yeah. and you're probably scared the first time you did a deal. Why? Because you had no idea what you were doing, and that's okay. But what has happened on the other side of that fear? You've now created a world of success. And, and so for me, that, that's, that's what I believe. If you're afraid to invest, well, don't put all your money in, but put some in. Put some out there. Make it, put something in the market in a way, uh, whether it's an acquisition, just as an investment, whatever it is, because you will never experience the benefit if you are always sitting on the sideline. Can't score the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're if you're scared, invest with somebody who's a professional at it, somebody who's doing it already, this win-win-wins. And then you get a front row seat of how it's actually done, which takes you up to the next step of comfort level. Maybe it's not quite as scary as I think. So I would always suggest that get an easy way in, you know? Yeah, it's it's funny. What we say is, you know, uh a lot of students for Carl and I will come to us and like, we can't do what you do. You guys know too much, you're the experts. And it's like well, the reality is if you do one deal, you know 80 to 90% of what we know on that deal. We might stub our toe a few times less because we've already gone through the pain of stubbing our toe repeatedly. <laughs> you know, but the idea is if you get that first deal across the line or, or even if you participate and kind of uh, tag team along the way and understand what the process looks like, yeah, you're going to learn so much just through the process that you'll be better prepared to do it yourself thereafter. And what about, uh, what's your one big regret or thing that you still have to tick in life? It could be personal life, whatever. Just what's your one thing that's already in your head just now? That's uh, so my biggest regret is not trusting my gut early enough in my life, right? Uh, from a professional and personal standpoint, I made missteps in both sides. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I think not trusting your gut, right? Uh, if your gut's telling you, give it a shot, like go give it a shot. I remember I was in my early twenties and I'll never forget this. I literally had this whole kind of business model mapped out of how I was going to go into a particular sector and through acquisition, I was going to go do a roll up. So acquiring a bunch of different companies in the same thing. And then I was going to create this economies of scale and a super fragmented mom and pop kind of shop industry. Brilliant. But I was too afraid and I didn't trust my gut to like make the leap. I didn't, I didn't feel secure in, in my own thought. Four or five years later, private equity started doing exactly what I had mapped out five years before. And I was so upset. I had had such 
a window of opportunity to be ahead of anything. Valuations changed. Everything changed in that particular niche I was, I was mapped out. And I was 22 years old. Like I could have had my life forever changed if I just trusted my gut and been able to pursue it in the way uh, I thought was possible. I think that's absolutely critical. Mostly we know the answers to most things we want to do. It's just trusting ourselves that we actually know the answer. It's yeah, exactly. Incredible. Exactly. And, um, this decade, right? So this decade, which I think is going to be the greatest wealth transfer, the great reset. What is your one big thing you want to achieve for the whole decade? For the whole decade? Uh, I'll end the decade with a 10-digit net worth. Yeah, fantastic. That's yeah, that, that'll be what I do this decade. How's that sound? <laughs> It's already ordained. It's, it's written. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, the reality is, so it's funny. Um, uh, I'm all about wealth creation, but it, I already have an idea of what I'm doing after I've created wealth. Like I've, I've certain, certain uh, altruistic visions for, for what I want to do. And it's going to take a lot of wealth to do those things. And uh, so, so this decade for me is the decade of accumulation. Uh, the decade of significant and rapid wealth creation for myself, people I work with, people who work for me, investors I work with, et cetera. Um, because as, as the ride goes up for me, you know, that tide will lift for, for all boats, so to speak. And uh, um, it'll ultimately allow me to go and do the things I want to do. Uh, That's a great point because a lot of people start with their trying to do something, their passion, trying to save the world. Well, I always think, save yourself and then let's find out what you're really here for. You know, create cash, we'll create that wealth so you've got a, you know, a foundation to go and do whatever it is that you're really here for to do, you know, whatever that means for you personally. I think that's a great point. Absolutely awesome. And yeah, it's funny. I, I, spend, I spend almost no time thinking about those endeavors I'm going to pursue significantly once my wealth is created. And I've done that by design because in this moment, it's a distraction uh, to the pursuit of creating the wealth required to do what I want to do. Now, it's a, it's a good beacon. It's a good light down the road, but it's not going to help me in the day-to-day -day necessarily. And so, so my focus now is purely on the wealth creation side um, as quickly and as effectively as possible. Fantastic. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, on the show. And uh, for anybody that wants to find out more about how to do acquisitions, the art of acquisitions from yourself and Carl, where would they go? Yeah, so, so two things. First of all, I'd encourage everyone to connect with me directly on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Adam Markley, uh, I think slash Markley AD or Adam Markley, one of the two. Uh, I, I'll look just like this in my picture. Uh, <laughs> light on hair and, and maybe smiling, I'm not sure. But um, uh, so, so two places besides LinkedIn, Dealmaker Wealth Society is where we actually teach people how to do this. Uh, one, of our, one of our core programs is Dealmaker Empire, where we actually teach existing business owners and walk them through the process to an acquisition. It's, a, it's an intensive course, so, so that might be an opportunity interesting to, to people. But otherwise, you can also reach out to the contact form uh, on Prox. P-R-O-X, capitalgroup.com. Again, proxcapitalgroup.com. Uh, absolutely happy to connect with anyone. Again, Adam Markley is, uh, is how you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, so fantastic. So anybody out there wants to start creating wealth um, through acquisitions, um, Prox Capital, or Dealmaker Wealth Society, or LinkedIn, Adam Markley, uh, I'd encourage everybody to reach out and start your journey today.
uh, take that first day. Yeah, Adam. Yeah, Arbor. thanks. Yeah, you thanks, know. Dan. Appreciate you having me today. I'm I'm super thrilled. And uh, at the end of the day, let's uh, let's create as much wealth for for ourselves and others as possible. Fantastic, Adam. Thanks very much. No doubt we'll see you again some point in the podcast in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Dan.